This is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, where justice for far too many is an injustice. This is hell. The Second Amendment, which states that a well-regulated militia being necessary to be security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. I mean, that seems fair enough. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. It's pretty simple. Fair enough. As long as you include everybody in people, as the Constitution has and does with we the people and all this talk of equality right at the top of the document. The Second Amendment must mean everybody has the right in some form of form a militia or carry a gun, right? I mean, if it's we the people and it's the Second Amendment, so it's all of us. Guess again. In fact, the Second Amendment was never supposed to protect the rights of African Americans, particularly slaves, to own guns. From the beginning, states were given rights to block African-American gun ownership. It was all part of the deal made by the Founding Fathers or Framers or whatever you want to call those white guys who wrote up documents establishing, establishing their freedoms while institutionalizing others' subjugation. It was all part of the deal they made with the South so they could create a United States of America. It wasn't only the continuation of the Atlantic slave trade that many nations around the world were abandoning, or the three-fifths clause, the dehumanizing practice of counting slaves as three-fifths of a human being, or the fugitive slave cause, which ensured slaves would be returned to their slaveholders if they escaped and were found anywhere else in the United States. There's also the Second Amendment, which is regularly used in the taking of African-American lives instead of their protection. In a few minutes, we will have the return of African-American studies scholar Carol Anderson, author of the second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Carol is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University and author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, which was a Washington Post notable book of 2016 and a National Book Critic Circles Award winner. Carol is also the author of One Person, One Vote, how Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which was long-listed for the National Book Award and a finalist for the Penn Galbraith Award in Nonfiction. This is Carol's third appearance here on This Is How Carol was on most recently back in 2018 to discuss One Person, No Vote. She was also on in 2016 when we talked to her about her book White Rage, which we selected as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show in 2016. You can follow Carol on Twitter at Prof C Anderson. That's Prof C Anderson. And you can find out more about Carol at her website, ProfessorCarolAnderson.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Egon Sheely as Richard is again on medical leave. Anything new by you, Egon? Oh, what's not new? It, it's the solstice was this weekend, so we've started summer. So I think that's something to look forward to. Although maybe um, maybe all those in the Southwest would argue with me on that one. So. Yeah, definitely. I've been hearing from people who are saying it's like 115 degrees outside, yet still they want our winter beanie cap. I don't know what's going on with that. Well, we'll take we'll count that as a win. Yeah. This past weekend, I discovered I've completely forgotten how to socialize. I mean, completely. 
Like, I do not remember how you are supposed to engage with more than one other person and two cats, which are the only life forms I've been engaging with since the first week of March 2020. I mean, sure, here and there I saw family and friends, but all those times were racked with anxiety and nervousness about either catching or transmitting the virus. So anytime I did see someone who I knew, people I love, I was never at ease. And I think that uneasiness about being around others is going to take some time to shake because Saturday night when I hung out over here at the bar for a kind of send-off, of my niece and her family as they're moving from Chicago back to Michigan after living here for 11 years. I was bouncing back and forth from being delighted to be with people I missed over the past 15, 16 months and a lingering yet very palpable fear of an invisible killer which has been stalking us all for a very long time. So my apologies to anyone who I saw on Saturday night and thought I was acting weird because it's going to take a while to go through the deprogramming of living in self-imposed quarantine. And, and I talk to people four times a week here on the radio show for 40, 45 minutes. So it's not like I've been completely disconnected from people, but I'm telling you, when I get into a social face-to-face -face setting, I, I, I forgot how I'm supposed to act. But more importantly than any of that, Egon, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating that uh, I, I, I'm not going to die? I'm not going to die. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. And during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin is coming to dinner. Egan will have more of your answers to this week's question from Mel following Carol Anderson, today's guest. By the way, our last two winners, despite it being the beginning of summer, as Egan was pointing out, requested that this is how winner Beanie as their prize for having our favorite answer to the question from Hell. And both winners are in Portland, albeit one is in Portland, Maine, and the other is in Portland, Oregon. So thanks to everyone from Portland to Portland who have been sending their answers to the question from Hell. Also, do people in cities named Portland on the coast of the United States know something about an early winter that the rest of us should know about? Because I find it oddly coincidental and suspicious that people from Portlands are already stocking up on winter clothing. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois. 60659. We got an email seconding a guest suggestion from Rue in Glasgow. Rue wrote us saying that he would like to hear an interview on the show with writer, vegan activist, and digital media producer Apf Co., author of the book Racism, a Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out. Joel in Chattanooga writes, I can't remember how I found This Is Hell, but I have become a regular listener. I think that you are a fantastic interviewer and learned so much from your conversations. I second Rue from Glasgow, who suggested Apfco as a possible guest. I've read the book Apf and her sister Syl wrote in 2017, titled Apfroism, 
Essays on Pop Culture, Feminism, and Black Veganism from Two Sisters, which you can find at afro-ism.com. That's A-P-H-R-O-I-S-M.com. Excellent, thought-provoking read, Joel says. And he adds, I had the opportunity to meet Af several years ago. She is friends with Lauren Ornelas, founder and president of Food Empowerment Project, a vegan social justice organization that my wife and I volunteered with when we lived in the Bay Area. F was a speaker at one of their events. Lauren would be another excellent guest suggestion. She has been active in the animal rights movement for over 30 years. The Food Empowerment Project works on food justice issues related to the exploitation of food workers, along with promoting veganism and a more just and sustainable world. You can find out more about them at foodispower.org, which is an awesome URL. Foodispower.org to find out more about the Food Empowerment Project. Thanks, Joel in Chattanooga. So, thanks to both Rue in Glasgow and Joel in Chattanooga, Chattanooga, which is the Glasgow of Tennessee, for not only suggesting APCO as a guest, but introducing us to APS work. Despite spending many hours every week trying to find guests whose views and issues go ignored by more establishment media, the media that dominates today's debates and discussions, we had never come across the work of APCO. And who knew so many of you were aware of AFCO's work? So yes, at your request, we will be pursuing an interview with AFCO on an upcoming episode of This Is Hell. So stay tuned in for that. We also got an email from Kyle. Kyle writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, we have been checking out your show and we'd love to be guests. We are activist jewelers with 26 years in the industry and authors of the most authoritative article on race and jewelry written, it's titled, where Black Lives Don't Matter to Jewelers. It was published in Canada's top trade magazine, Jewelry Business, last December. I pronounced it that way because it's spelled J-E-W-E-L-L-E-R-Y. Apparently a Canadian spelling, maybe? I don't know. Uh, these days, ethical or responsible claims are central to jewelry making and marketing, Kyle writes. We think your listeners would be interested in learning how much how such claims are almost always cover-ups for human rights and environmental atrocities. The fact of the matter is the narrative has changed, but the supply chain hasn't changed much in hundreds of years. As this illustration from our 42,000-word ethical jewelry expose published as an open-source document in 2018 shows. Kyle then quotes their work, which states, Quick case in point, over 3.7 million people were killed in diamond-funded wars, yet not one person in the jewelry sector has ever been held accountable. Instead, the industry created a cover-up narrative with the term conflict-free diamonds. Kyle continues, we think your listeners should hear why the term conflict-free diamonds should be torn down like monuments to Confederate generals, and how they can purchase a wedding ring or engagement ring, which is the sourcing in its sourcing, represents their love. We thank you in advance for your consideration and look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, not just Kyle, but Kyle and Mark. Kyle and Mark, I think it's been close to 20 years since we last discussed diamonds on the show. And that ain't right, because the violence and racism around diamonds has not diminished in any way. So yes, Kyle and Mark, we are very interested in having you on the show to explain why the idea of conflict-free diamonds is a sham. And I'm very, very curious that if it is a sham... How can any diamond ring truly represent love? Aren't all diamonds blood diamonds? You too can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio, message us via Facebook, messenger at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or just send us stuff in the actual mail to thisishell2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 
60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you do send us anything, any, any suggestions or constructive criticism or even destructive criticism, we'll more than likely share your thoughts on air. Coming up, the Second Amendment does not protect but is lethal to African-Americans. Egan will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever swag. This is hell swag you want. You can see all of our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. So we'll have more of your answers to the question from hell, and Egon will be telling us who else is going to be on the rest of this week's show. That's all coming up here on This Is Hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. The Second Amendment is not what you think it is. Those well-regulated militias were really good at one thing, and it's not what you think it is, like stopping tyrants from busting in their doors. Well, and the way it is unfairly and unequally enforced along racial lines is increasingly deadly for African Americans. Returning to the show, African American studies scholar Carol Anderson is author of the new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Welcome back to the show, Carol. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Chuck. I've been looking so forward to having you back on the show. It's great to hear your voice. This is Carol's third appearance on This Is Hell. Carol was on most recently back in 2018 to discuss her book, One Person, No Vote. She was also on in 2016 when we talked to her about her book, White Rage, which we selected as one of our very favorite books to be featured on the show that year and one of our very favorite interviews. You can follow Carol on Twitter at Prophecy Anderson. You can find out more about Carol at her website, ProfessorCarolAnderson.org. You begin by mentioning the 2016 police killing of Philando Castile, who, as you write, had been pulled over in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota, because his wide-set nose, supposedly resembled that of a robbery suspect, had been reaching for his ID, but in order to avoid any surprises, let the police officer know that he had a gun with him, a legally permitted right-to-carry concealed gun. That was all the cop needed to know. Officer Geronimo Yanez began shooting. How much does a concealed carry permit protect people of color? Uh, not at all, really. Not very much. Um, and and the issue that I, I looked at there was at the Philando Castile killing um, just was a catalyst for me. Um, as I saw the virtual silence of the NRA, um, and as journalists began asking, well, don't African-Americans have Second Amendment rights? And that led me to go all the way back to the 17th century to go figure this thing out. And what became clear to me century after century after century um, was how deeply embedded anti-blackness is, this fear of black people, this, this narrative of black people as being dangerous as a threat to white society and, and how that fear just permeates uh, the society and our laws. And it creates a, a danger zone, a precarity, a, a makes, makes black lives not matter in this society. So that concealed uh, permit um, just doesn't hold, it doesn't, isn't worth the paper it's written on. We've discussed on this show a lot how uh, black political thought is not monolithic in any way. And there is this framing that we see in the media often 
that African-American politics are anti-police. However, there are a lot of people within the African-American community who do believe in the police, who want access to guns, who want more police because they are concerned about their safety and their security. For those people who are African-American and are pro-police and want access to a gun, how dangerous is it for them to be secure with the Second Amendment rights, with concealed carry permits? How dangerous is it for uh, African-Americans who are pro-police to actually try to protect themselves with a gun? Um, and so, as you can see in the book, I have multiple examples in there. So we have Katherine Johnston, who was a 92-year-old Black woman here in Atlanta. And she heard somebody removing her burglar bars um, in the middle of the night, and she gets her her rusty revolver to protect herself. And it turned out to be the police uh, conducting a drug raid. Um, and as these police barge into her house early in the morning, she shoots because she doesn't know that they're cops and they shoot back and they gunned her down. Over 30 bullets went into that house. The same thing when you think about Breonna Taylor, um, again, cops busting into her apartment um, her her fiance, her boyfriend, not knowing um, that these are cops, uh, gets his license to carry gun to protect that domicile. And the response was over 30 bullets raining into that apartment. Um, five of the bullets and a projectile hitting Breonna Taylor and killing her. Um, so the level of protection um, is is not what we think it is uh, when we get these narratives about protection and the guns. It, part of it is that we have to rethink what safety and security really looks like. And you know, when it comes to policing, I've got to say, I, I, I use this analogy. There was a, a physician named Michael Swango who killed uh, 50 to 60 of his patients. Um, and he would kill several of them, the hospital would figure it out and, 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 and fire him and he'd move to another hospital. And then he'd do it again and then he'd move to another one. Finally, they finally caught him and stopped him. But when, when you think about it, it's like saying, if you really want healthcare, you can have Michael Swango or you can have nothing. That's not an option. That's not what the black community is, is, is asking for. They're asking for a level of safety and security. And the structures we have now don't provide that. Do you think the uprising of last summer against racialized police violence, do you think that had any impact on those African-Americans who do believe in the police, who do want to protect themselves, who may have been looking toward law enforcement and more funding for the police for the solution to their security and safety problems? Um, I don't think that when you saw the, the tape of, of, of Derek Chauvin uh, kneeling on George Floyd's neck um, and you saw the casualness with which that happened, um, and you saw the other police officers not intervening, um, or when you saw in Buffalo, the police push down that, that elderly white man and his head cracks and blood is coming out of his ear and they walk by as if, as if there's just litter on the ground, that sense of safety is not there, um, emanating from the, the, the police in that way. Um, and I don't think that the, the, the 
the uprisings, the, the protest um, did much to, to stop the police brutality, nor did it do much to allay the concerns about uh, the lack of safety um, in black communities. When you write about Philando Castile, you also mentioned the previous day's uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana police killing of Alton Sterling. You write how Sterling was carrying a gun, which was not unusual in this right to carry state. Granted, Sterling had a felony conviction, so owning a fa- firearm was for him illegal, but he had been robbed before and wanted protection. The Baton Rouge police received a 911 call that there was a man with a weapon threatening customers at a local convenience store. As officers rolled onto the scene, they saw Sterling sitting there selling CDs and DVDs, just as the store owner allowed him to do, and indeed welcomed. The threatening man was not Sterling. In fact, there was no threatening man. It had been a prank call. What would you say to someone who believes, oh, the problem was the prank call. If the call is not made, the killing does not happen. So what is missed, if anything, when we only focus on the prank call going horribly wrong? Or in the case of Brianna Taylor, we only focus on it was a communication problem. Um, What we miss is how the police saw somebody black and immediately saw threat, saw danger. It is the way that there was that that communication problem in Cleveland um, with Tamir Rice, where the police heard that there was somebody in the park with a gun. Now, Ohio is an open carry state and there was no one in the park but Tamir Rice and the police rolled up and within two seconds, they shot him within two seconds saying he was dangerous, he was a threat. It was a toy gun. Um, And so the fact that the communication didn't come through that we think it's a child and, and not an adult, or that we think it's a toy gun. The police didn't get that that message. What the message that they did get was that there was somebody black in the park by himself with a gun. And that was a threat. Let's talk about that message for a second, because you also mentioned last August's Kenosha, Wisconsin killing of two people, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, and wounding of Gage Groisquitz, who lost his bicep, a shooting carried out with an illegally acquired AR-15 that was taken across state lines by a minor, and how the killer, who was opening openly carrying the gun, was offered water by police prior to the shootings. He then held up his hands as if to surrender. Instead, the police ignored him, and he freely went back home across the state border to Illinois. You write, for all of the law and order backslapping, the killer was a minor who was illegally carrying the AR-15 in an open carry state, and he had killed two men and wounded another. Yet, as the police, media, and elected officials made clear, Rittenhouse still had Second Amendment rights not available to Tamir Rice, who had been sitting alone in a pavilion with a toy gun. The police argued the killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice was an accident, information about Tamir being a juvenile and it likely being a toy gun, not getting the police responding to the call, and the mistaken identification of the toy as a real gun and misinterpretation of Tamir's actions. So what do you think the message the white supremacist killer of Rosenbaum and Huber was sending to the police as a white minor when he approached them carrying an AR-15 while walking towards the crowd unimpeded? What was the message that he was sending to police as opposed to the message that Tamir Rice was sending to police. For Kyle Rittenhouse, it was like, he's one of us. You know, the police said, we really appreciate you guys being here. So he was part of the the control mechanism 
for those who were protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man who was shot in the back seven times by police. That is what was happening in Kenosha. Um, and that, that Rittenhouse was one of them, one of the, the guardians of law and order. Uh, one of the guardians to put down this 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 protest um, by folks who were angry that the cops had the audacity to shoot a black man in the back seven times in front of his children. In the case of Philando Castile, what does the NRA's lack of outrage when people of color are legally carrying a weapon and are killed by police? What does that reveal to you about the NRA and the way it does defend the Second Amendment? Is the NRA's in the NRA's world? is the second amendment for everyone the the virtual silence of the nra in the killing of philando castile as i said was a catalyst um because when you look at it the nra wayne lapierre who's the vice president um was absolutely vocal um at ruby ridge when um white militia were killed by federal law enforcement um, in a shootout and the same at Waco. And, and, they, and Wayne LaPierre called uh, federal law enforcement jackbooted government thugs. And to have that level of vitriol, it was so vitriolic that George Herbert Walker Bush um, ended his, his canceled his, his membership in the NRA. It just, it was so like, what? But with Philando Castile, um, they were virtually silent. It took black members in the NRA to push uh, the NRA to say, well, we believe everybody should have the right to bear arms. Um, and then more pushing that we can't say anything until the, the investigation is over. Um, what that signaled was that there is a, a Jim Crow sign over um, the, the Second Amendment. And, and, and as I said, I went back looking um, to ask that question, do African-Americans have Second Amendment rights? You mentioned the Clive Bundy situation, uh, which was something that we discussed uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking to Jacqueline Keeler about her new book, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement and the American Story of Sacred Lands. And you write how Nevada rancher Clive and Bundy, and this is a story not a lot of people know, who had refused to pay over $1 million in fees for grazing his cattle on public land, summoned his gun-toting self-style militiamen to do battle with federal authorities to prevent the seizure, seizure of his herd for restitution. You then quote Larry Pratt, a speaker at the NRA's 2014 National Convention, commenting on the fact that Bundy, quote, backed the Bureau of Land Management agents down with automatic rifles and other deadly weaponry, proudly called that armed confrontation a proper, legitimate, lawful response to illegitimate, unlawful exercise of government power, particularly on the federal level. Is Pratt correct? After all, the Second Amendment does state a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a state. The right of, of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Is Bundy's group a well regulated militia? No, <laughs> no. Um, when you think about it, this reminds me of Shay's Rebellion in a way. Um, and Shay's Rebellion happened in 1787 in Massachusetts. And you had a group of white men who were 
angry that the government had a taxation policy, that the, the white men did not want to pay the taxes. So the government was coming in and seizing that property as restitution, as payment. And Shays' rebellion um, exploded and went after the Massachusetts government. And the Massachusetts government then called in the militia and the militia, the state militias um, just were like, no, we're not fighting. We're not fighting them. And in fact, you had members of the militia joining Shays' rebellion. And it took Boston merchants paying for a mercenary army to put down Shays' rebellion. That's what was hanging over the heads and the, and the, the, the memories of folks as they were drafting the Constitution of the United States was Shays' rebellion. They saw that as a mob, um, as, as a group of angry white men who were taking on the government um, because they didn't like uh, being taxed. Now, I know that sounds ironic given one of the, the sources of the, the, the rebellion, the revolution against Britain, but here you have uh, Shays' rebellion being this group of white men angry at government policy and taking up arms to, to basically fight the government. Um, what you also see happening here, and this is where you get, get a sense of the racial uh, inequities in this, is that uh, for all of the rebellion, for all of the shooting, um, for all of the attack on the government, um, basically nobody did time for that. Um, they Very little time and their sentences were, were commuted or they were pardoned. And the same thing happened with the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, in 1794, where you had white men in an uprising against the government, going against the feds on a taxation policy. Um, and, and, it, and it led to George Washington, President George Washington leading the militia coming in to take on the Whiskey Rebellion. <laughs> and again, you had very few consequences for attacking the federal government by white men. Meanwhile, when you had slave uprisings, um, the response was absolutely vicious. It was absolutely merciless. Um, you had black people uh, fighting to get free. And the response was um, beheadings, um, disemboweling, um, putting these, these severed heads on stakes as a warning to the rest of the enslaved, this is what will happen to you. Um, you had mass public hangings. Um, you had all of this violence raining down on black folks trying to get free. Whereas when you had whites rebelling against the government, you get amnesty, you get pardons, you get commutations of sentences. So what would you say to those on the left who might be a little bit leery of prosecuting the Bundy movement in that they might see this as eventually being blown back on the left, as often many things are. Whenever there's a crackdown on the right, it seems like the left is more persecuted as well. So what would you say to those on the left who might have some sympathy for the Bundy movement standing up to the federal government? Standing up for uh, grazing your cattle on federal land and not paying for it. <laughs> um, what 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 
What value system were the Bundys fighting for there? I mean, this is where we have to ask these kinds of questions. Um, when we're making these alliances and when we're making these analogies, um, what was the principle here? We had a recent guest say that uh, the difference between the January 6th uprising and other uprisings is that was an uprising to take people's rights away, not to expand rights. Is that the difference between these two kinds of movements that the people on the left need to see when they are trying to balance, when they are trying to be fair minded? Yeah, when, yes, when you look at that January 6th uprising, what we're seeing, and so I'm going to go back to the previous book, One Person, No Vote. Um, what we're seeing is, uh, and, and to white rage, what we're seeing is this massive backlash to Black people and Indigenous people uh, and Asian American Pacific Islanders uh, exercising their right to vote. And so you saw that the target was those votes in Detroit weren't legitimate. Those votes in Milwaukee weren't legitimate. Those votes in Philadelphia weren't legitimate. Those votes in Atlanta weren't legitimate. Those votes in Maricopa County, Phoenix, not legitimate. And so to those are, are cities that have uh, sizable minority populations. And so it is to say that th those folks don't have the right to vote. Those folks don't have the right to weigh in. Those folks don't have 15th Amendment rights. Um, and, and that any time that they weigh in, it is illegitimate, particularly when it doesn't bring a result that we like. And we have the power and authority to overturn those votes. And again, we have a history of that. Um, 1873, the Colfax massacre in Louisiana. 1898, the, 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 the massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, where whites didn't like the results of an election and the response was a bloody massacre. And the next part of that response was to let whites get away with it. You quote NRA leader Wayne LaPierre describing cops as jackbooted government thugs who have more power to take away our constitutional rights, break in our doors, seize our guns, destroy our property, and even injure or kill us. So how do police, and I know that you're not a police officer and you can't, you're not an NRA member and you can't necessarily give us a, the exact right perspective, but I'm hoping you can. How do police who are NRA members balance the NRA's anti-police statement with the NRA's support for the police. After all, you know, while LaPierre denounces police, the NRA offers member benefits to law enforcement, including insurance coverage and college scholarships. So, so how do they balance that degradation of the police from Wayne LaPierre and then their own membership within the NRA? That is a great question. It's kind of like the way that I'm looking at the Republican Party now, the back the blue folks who couldn't, um, provide a, a vote for um, medals of honor for the Capitol Police who protected them during the January 6th insurrection, who said that, you know, these were just tourists. Um, it's the same kind of sophistry. Um, it's that um, the, 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 the weighing in, the use of the police against uh, folks of color is fine. The use of the police against whites 
that's highly problematic. So what would happen then if the NRA defended legal gun owners who are people of color in killings by police? I mean, why not exploit killings of gun owners of color by police as the NRA does when legal gun owners are white and are killed by police? Why, why not be a big tent anti-police violence organization when that could clearly boost your membership? Well, one of the things, as you know, that I argue in this book is that what the Second Amendment is really designed to do is to control Black people. It was the fear of Black people. It was the fear of slave revolts. It was the fear of being left defenseless. When, If the federal government could control the militia, as James Madison had written in the Constitution, then that meant, as Patrick Henry and George Mason argued in Virginia, that... Um, the feds could not be trusted to send the militia down if there was a slave revolt and we will be left defenseless is what George Mason said. And, and, and so when you've got a, a second amendment that is designed, that is predicated on the militia, which is predicated on the control of the enslaved, to deny the enslaved, to deny black people their rights, then the second amendment is really operating in NRA land, um, that denial of black people their rights. Think about the case of, of Amber Geiger, who was the Dallas police department, um, Dallas PD officer who went into Botham Jean's apartment and, and shot him because she said, I thought I was in my apartment. I was afraid. I thought I was being attacked. And, and Dana Lesh's um, a response, who was the spokesperson for the NRA, said, well, you know, if he'd had a gun, you know, he'd still be alive. Except we know that that's not true. Um, Katherine Johnston had a gun and she is dead. Um, Kenneth Walker, who was with Breonna Taylor, had a gun and Breonna Taylor is dead. Um, and so the, the understanding that the Second Amendment is, is born of the same uh, fear and debasement and, and dehumanization as the three-fifths clause means that we understand how the Second Amendment is truly operating. So how unique is this Second Amendment's racialized application of constitutional rights? Is this the way the Second Amendment is enforced along race lines? Is this different from any other legal protection promised in the Constitution? I think what is what makes it so different is that its genesis was racist. Um, so that the, the 15th Amendment that says the right to vote, um, its genesis is not racist. Um, the 14th Amendment, birthright citizenship, its genesis is not racist. Uh, the right to a speedy and fair trial, not racist. Uh, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, not racist. Um, the right against cruel and unusual punishment, not racist. The foundation of the Second Amendment is racist. So you also point out that the amendments covering the criminal justice system, the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th, have offered little to no protection for African-Americans because of numerous Supreme Court decisions that have embedded racism and racial profiling into policing, trial procedures, and sentencing. So are, are equal rights protections for those of African, African descent guaranteed in the Constitution and then undermined by the law? Is the Constitution a promise of equality and then the law is an enforcement of inequality, or is that an oversimplification? 
I think what we're seeing is that um, the, the Constitution, um, the, these amendments that I've defined, described are race neutral, but the ways that they are implemented in this society are not. Um, so for instance, the 15th Amendment, um, which is the, the, the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. When Mississippi and the other Southern states implemented what's called the Mississippi plan that um, provided for, you had to pay a poll tax and you had to have a, you had to have a literacy test. Um, the US Supreme Court in 1898 in the Williams decision said that the poll tax and the literacy test did not violate the 15th amendment when they were designed to violate using race neutral language to violate the 15th amendment. And so it is the operate, the way that it is operationalized that in fact creates these racial imbalances. You also point out how Georgia was even more direct in their application of how they're forbidding blacks to own guns, as you were just touching on. Blacks forbidden from owning or carrying firearms, but white men were required to own a gun or pistol to give them the means to search and examine all Negro houses for offensive weapons and ammunition. The distinction was clear. Citizens had the right to keep arms. The slave did not. Is that the Second Amendment the NRA believes in? After all, the NRA was founded in 1871. Very suspiciously, only six years after the end of the Civil War. So is that the uh, gun rights that they want, the gun rights for uh, white people to keep black people down? Well, you know, the NRA was founded, yes, in 1871, but by Union soldiers who who really were appalled at the lack of marksmanship of the folks that they were fighting with and fighting against. Um, and And so you don't see this kind of of radicalization of the NRA um, until the, 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 the 1970s, when there is a, a takeover, a coup uh, of the NRA leadership. And, and so the NRA that we think of now is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, we did have the NRA uh, helping to draft the legislation in the late 1960s against the Black Panthers open carrying weapons. Um, there you had a massive police brutality raining down on the black community. And, and there was no accountability in the system. And so that was the catalyst, the spur for the rise of the Black Panther Party for self-defense led by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. And they designed a police, the police uh, strategy, which was because they knew the law. It, California was open carry and there was a certain way you had to open carry and there were certain weapons that you could have and you couldn't have. They made sure that they always had legally licensed weapons and they knew the distance that they had to stand from the police as the police were making arrests in the black community. And they did that, but the police did not like to be monitored at all. And so the police ran to uh, Don Mulford, who was an assemblyman in the California legislature and said, help us, help us turn what they're doing to make them illegal. Because every time the cops pulled over uh, a Panther, the, 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 they couldn't write them up on anything because the guns were legal, um, because the, they were licensed weapons. So there was nothing that they could write them up on. And, and the Mulford Act 
um, made what the Panthers were doing illegal, therefore making the Panthers illegal. On this newness of the NRA, I just want to focus on this newness of this whole situation. You write, whereas the judicial and legislative weakening of the Bill of Rights has been instrumental in allowing the death penalty, voter suppression, and racial profiling to undermine African-American citizenship rights, the Second Amendment, despite numerous massacres and the thousands of gun deaths, has become one or has become only more constitutionally and legally entrenched for everyone that is except African-Americans. How new is this deterioration of all other rights while the Second Amendment is further entrenched? Um, You see it in the 2008 Heller decision in D.C. and the 2010 McDonald decision in Chicago. What, What the Supreme Court did there was to go back and say that inherent in the Second Amendment is the individual right to bear arms. Prior to that time, the courts had argued that the Second Amendment was about the militia, the militia, the militia. Um, There were strict gun control laws in Chicago and in Washington, DC. The Supreme Court decision struck down those laws because they said it violated the Second Amendment's individual right to bear arms. Now, you look at that decision in in 2008 and 2010, and then you look at um, the rise of stand your ground laws, which actually began in 2005, which which were about self-defense, which is what the Supreme Court said is is instrumental, bedrock, foundational in the Second Amendment. Um, And you see the disparity in the way that that plays out. So for instance, um, stand your ground. Uh, Whites who kill black people are 10 times more likely um, to be able to walk away with a justifiable homicide um, than blacks who kill whites. And that is because stand your ground um, expands the, the parameters of the castle doctrine, which says if somebody comes into your home, uh, an intruder, you have the right to fend them off, to ward them off. With Stand Your Ground, it expands the parameters. So it's not just your home, it's anywhere where you have a right to be. So if I'm in the grocery store, if I'm in a parking lot, if I'm on the sidewalk, and it says, if you feel threatened, Well, when black is the default threat in American society, that threat then makes my perception of being um, harmed um, much more uh, viable. And, And so what we see, for instance, is that whites who kill blacks are over 200% more likely to, to walk than whites who kill whites understand your ground. When blacks are the victims, the criminal justice system says, yes, we can see how you felt threatened. Well, this question of individual or collective rights definitely has an impact on the ground level, on especially on African-American lives. You also point out that this idea or this debate over an individual or collective right to bear arms, that it's a distraction and not asking the right question. What effect have those recent decisions around individuals or collective rights then to bear arms? 
What effect has that had on African-American lives? And more importantly, what is the question that we should be focusing on that we're not focusing on? What is the question, the better question than individual or a collective rights to bear arms? Um, to me, the, the key question is, is what we need to be looking at is the anti-blackness in American society that consistently defines black people as a threat as dangerous, as, as something that you have to be protected against. Um, when we have black as the default threat, that is what allowed Tamir Rice to be gunned down in, in two seconds. That is what allowed George Zimmerman to walk after you have a grown man stalking a child with a loaded weapon an unarmed child with a loaded weapon and the court going, yeah, we can see this is self-defense. This is what allows um, John Crawford to be in an open carry state, walking around a Walmart that sells guns with a toy BB gun and, and, and white saying, oh, we were afraid, we were afraid. Um, he looked shady, he looked suspicious and the cops gunning him down. When we don't engage the, the anti-blackness in American society, it basically puts crosshairs on black people's lives. Can there be a, a right to bear arms in the United States that is not racialized? Can racism be reformed out of the Second Amendment? Is that possible? Mm. That is a great question, Chuck. Um, to me, the Second Amendment is so structurally foundationally flawed because it is predicated on anti-Blackness that it needs to go the same way that the Three-Fifths Clause has. So is the Second Amendment as it stands today, is it stopping African-Americans from having human and civil rights? And has it always been that way with the Second Amendment? Because that would suggest the intent of the Second Amendment was, and is, and has always been, to keep African Americans from experiencing human and civil rights. So is the Second Amendment, is it possible for African Americans to have equal rights in the United States as long as there is a Second Amendment? Because the Second Amendment is so lethal, and it is predicated on anti-Blackness, um, it is, uh, to me, a major uh, barrier to full and equal rights here in the United States. You also mentioned how African-Americans are never seen as good guys with guns. If African-Americans are not seen by police as good guys with guns, what's the impact of, a, of the good guy with a gun thinking on the lived lives of African-Americans? Can a good guy with a gun protect African-Americans? Mm. You know, and so in the book, you you see that I lay out several stories of good guys with guns because that has been one of the NRA mantras, right? Um, and you had uh, um, Jamil Roberson in Chicago who had there was a shooting in a club. He's got he's security. He's got security on his 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 uniform, and the word security on his uniform, and he tackles the, the guy with the gun, the cops come in and they start shooting Roberson. Um, you had um, Emantic Bradford Jr. in Alabama. There was a shooting in a mall. He's an army veteran. He, in, 
and uh, Alabama is open carry. He pulls out his gun to get people to safety. The police roll in. They see this black guy with a gun and they began shooting. And I even tell the story of, a, of an off-duty black police officer who um, tackles a, a guy who is running, who has committed a crime. And the cops roll up and they began shooting the black guy. Being the black guy with a gun is like an oxymoron because being the good guy who is black, it doesn't compute. One of the things that you mentioned historically, which is just amazing to me, you point out a series of slave revolts in the 1600s, 1700s led to a number of laws in colonial America, restricting black people's access to weapons and meting out brutal punishment for possession of use or use of firearms. There was a concomitant creation of slave patrols working hand in hand with militias to keep the enslaved population under control and disarmed. So how important was disarming African-Americans and maintaining the South. Did slavery continue because African-Americans were not given Second Amendment, right? Because that might cause some cognitive dissonance for those who support the Confederacy claiming pride in their Southern heritage and their support for the Second Amendment. Uh, the, the lack of access to weaponry was foundational for, for the maintenance of slavery. Um, the fear that the enslaved, if they had arms, if they had access to guns, would just wreak holy hell on the slave owners, on that white society, just sent enormous panic and fear. This is why you see the rise of these militias. This is why you see law after law after law banning access to guns. Um, for not only the enslaved, but also for free Blacks as well. And you see this uh, with the 1792 uh, Uniform Militia Act uh, for, for, the, for the federal government, where it says that every able-bodied white man uh, between the ages of 18 and 45 must join the militia and must have a gun. So you see how you have laws, state laws, saying black people cannot have guns. You have federal law saying that white men must have guns. This is the, the kind of foundation of, of, of the kind of inordinate power of violence raining down on black people to, to keep them from, from, from fighting for freedom to keep them um, enslaved, to keep them from having full rights. This leads to the 1857 Dred Scott decision, that Supreme Court decision, where um, you had Dred Scott, who was a black man who was enslaved, but had been taken to free soil, um, and who argued then when his, his, his enslaver brought, brought him to Missouri, a slave state, that actually he was free. Um, because he had lived in Illinois and he had lived in Wisconsin. And uh, Roger Taney wrote in his decision that black people have never been citizens of the United States. Um, they weren't citizens in the founding documents. They, if they were citizens, they'd be able to carry the mail. If they were citizens, they would be able to get passports. Um, and if they were citizens, they'd be able to go across state lines easily and they would be able to carry weapons whenever and wherever they wanted. That a black man does not have any rights that a white man is bound to respect. 
this would all undermine the intense myths and mythification that we've had of the docility and acceptance of African-Americans in their role as slaves. This would undermine all of that myth of how slaves just took it and they just accepted their station in life. You write Virginians Patrick Henry and George Mason had made clear to James Madison that the protection of slavery was the sine qua non for ratification of the U.S. Constitution. What Madison had already done with the Fugitive Slave Clause, the extension of the Atlantic slave trade for 20 years, and the Three-Fifths Clause was not enough. The concerns Henry and Mason raised about local control of the militia and how essential it was to put down slave revolts and protect plantation owners had to be addressed. The Second Amendment served that purpose. Thus, in the Bill of Rights, emergent amendment rooted in fear of black people to deny them their rights to keep them from tasting liberty, the second became the Faustian bargain made to weaken anti-federalists and Southern opposition to the Constitution. So is the Constitution then a declaration of war on slave uprisings? Ooh. Um, the Constitution is a key instrument in that. I mean, this is um, David Wallstriker's Slavery's Constitution really lays that out as well. It is um, the, the anti-blackness in there, the fear of the enslaved and the entrenchment of the slaveocracy uh, was essential to this constitution. I mean, and this is the deals that they were cutting where the South was like, this is about slavery. We've got to protect slavery. And you had uh, many of the Northern delegates going, we've got to have a strong viable United States. And, the, and it was going to cost black people dearly. Again, a couple of weeks ago, when we did speak with Jacqueline Keeler about her book, Standoff, she pointed out that the Declaration of Independence not only says all men are created equal, but what is forgotten is the Declaration's list of, quote, repeated injuries and usurpations by King George III cited as reasons for dissolving political bands with Great Britain, which includes this characterization of native nations. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. So I asked Jacqueline if that was a declaration of war on all Native peoples, and she said it was. Here you point to a declaration of war against all slaves within the Constitution, so are the nations, are the United States founding documents, race war declarations? Mm. They are these really interesting um, constructions that have, as I described the U.S., the U.S. has this aspirational component. We hold these truths um, and it has its hardcore realities of um, bedrock racism, bedrock inequality. And where these battles in this nation have been is been to, to move to that aspirational plane and where you see the, like, the pushbacks that we have now um, in terms of, of, of the teaching of racism in our foundational documents, the teaching of slavery, the teaching of Jim Crow. Um, the teaching of, of post-racial racism is, is this, this, this treating our aspirations as achievements, as treating that we have already arrived, we have already overcome. And that has been um, 
um, where the battles have been. Aspirations as achievements, it sounds a lot like, uh, you know, the pandemic is over, Carol. <laughs> right. As Delta is kicking folks butt. OK. <laughs> so you write the Second Amendment is lethal, steeped in anti-blackness. It is the loaded weapon laying around just waiting for the hand of some authority to put it to use. This is from a quote you cite earlier in the book. You point out how Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson, who's famous for the military tribunals in Nuremberg, noted in a case saturated with discrimination, Japanese internment during World War II, racism lies about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. Is yeah. there a history, an ongoing practice in the United States that whenever the state's authority is being challenged, it reacts with racism? Were last summer's uprisings against racialized police violence, the state's authority being challenged and it responded with racialized police violence? Um, when you saw those uprisings, um, against the, the killing of black folk. Um, the response, you think about it right now, the response that we're dealing with, with that insurrection in, on January 6th, the response of, of the massive voter suppression laws that are coming through, the, the, the response of the anti-protest laws that saying that you can actually run over protesters all of that is the state's response to um, this quest for real justice and real equality and real equity in the United States. One last question for you, Carol. We've been speaking with African-American studies scholar Carol Anderson, author of The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Follow Carol on Twitter at Prof. C. Anderson. Find out more about Carol at her website, ProfessorCarolAnderson.org. You can find our interview in 2016 when we talked to Carol about her book, White Rage, and our interview in 2018 when we discussed One Person, No Vote. Both of those interviews are available at our website right now. This is Hell.com. When you search on Anderson, and there's probably lots of Andersons in there, so you might want to put in Carol Anderson. Carol, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Uh, the NRA, one of, their ma- one of their publications is called America's First Right. Clearly, Mm -hmm. this is the Second Amendment. And that uh, magazine was very, very much focused last summer on the police violence protests that were happening across the United States. What kind of government do you have when gun rights and the right to use them are paramount to all other rights? When the Second Amendment is constantly being re-entrenched, while the Bill of Rights is constantly being weakened, what kind of government do you have when gun rights are paramount to all other rights? You have a space where we are right now, where after mass shooting, after mass shooting, after mass shooting, we get no reasonable gun safety laws. And that is because of the entrenched anti-Blackness where you get, I will be left defenseless. Those people will come in from St. Louis and take everything that I have. And so people are willing to trade, to, to, to be um, left vulnerable in grocery stores, to be left vulnerable in schools, in their churches, um, at their workplaces, 
for this overriding fear that black people are coming. Um, it is George Mason hollering, we will be left defenseless. And so you have a, a regime preying on that entrenched fear um, to be able to sell weapons. That is a scary state and a scary, what type of government is that? How would, would you describe that government as? One that really needs a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> is, is the only thing we can do though, Carol, before you go, is the only thing we can do have a constitutional convention? No, no. Um, and, 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 and why I'm saying no so quickly is that there is a movement among the right wing <laughs> to have a constitutional convention so that they can rewrite this thing in order to X the rest of us out. Um, what we really need to do is to be able to, we need S1 to pass and we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to pass so that we can have the full power of this democracy so that we are voting in representatives who really truly represent us. We move dark money out. We get rid of dark money out of, out of our campaigns, out of our politics. Um, and that we get a truly representative government that thinks through what does safety and security really look like in this nation for all of us. And now all our listeners know why you are quickly becoming my very favorite guest to have here on this show. Carol, I really love having conversations with you. I don't want this to be happening only three times over the last five years. I want to make sure that we have you on our show more, and we will be annoying you in the future to have you back on. Thank you so much for being on our show again. Thank you so much, Chuck. I love the conversation. All right. Take care. This is not the media, as you can freaking tell. This is hell. And if you like that, you should support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Maybe subscribing to our Patreon podcast or buying some piece of merchandise or just giving us a straight out donation. We'd really appreciate it. We'd really, really appreciate it. This week's question mail is what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. And during this week's moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin is coming to dinner. And I think he's coming to dinner at my house. Egon, do you have more answers to this week's question from hell? Sure do, Chuck. What mantra are you repeating? Uh, Susan M. is conjuring Buddy Holly, and she says, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I can see somebody sitting in a lotus position just saying that over again. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, that's pretty creepy. Somewhere there's a monk doing such right now, I'm sure. <laughs> Wearing horn room glasses like Buddy Holly? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's where he went. He, he never died in that crash. <laughs> Ended up on the top of a mountain in Nepal. New conspiracy theory. I like that one. Uh, Chris L. says, fresh goes better with Mentos, <laughs> fresh and full of life. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Chris T. says, never get out of the boat, never get out of the boat, never get out of the boat. <laughs> Which I'm sure is useful for many people in many places. So, uh, Mike M says, don't say Indian style. And Aaron D says, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Uh, let's see. We've got a few more here. Pete P, in response to what mantra are you repeating, says, don't try. Compliments to Bukowski. We got dark real quick. Uh, Martin F. says, 
My demon is on my butt. My demon is on my butt. It's building a wooden hut. My demon is on my butt. It's <laughs> <laughs> gross. <laughs> and we have Annette B who says thrive, strive, adapt, survive. Hmm. All right. Is that it? That's it for now. Egon, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow on Wednesday, we have journalist Cole Stangler on his article, U.S. Sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela Hamper the Global Fight Against COVID-19, which was published for The Intercept. This will be Cole's third appearance on This Is Hell. Cole was on back in December of 2018 and February of 2019 to report to us from France on the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest. You can hear both those interviews right now at our website, thisishell.com. When you search on the name Stangler, it's like Strangler, but no R, and I'm very suspicious about the family history of Cole Stangler and how that R fell out of his name. And what about on Thursday's show? On Thursday, we have Brian Justion, uh, who will be talking about a piece he had published with Logic Magazine uh, on automation labor in the U.S. Postal Service called The Non-Machinables. And, of course, we also have our moment of truth where Jeff Dorchin is coming to dinner. And by the way, uh, if you do name your band The Non-Machinables, Brian Justian will sue the hell out of you. Very litigious guy. I'm just making that up. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Thanks to Carol Anderson, our guest today. Thanks to Egon. Thank you, Egon. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Chuck. Anytime. <laughs> sure. Pretending, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.